0: back. We'll be right back. That was a bit of the theme song for The Toxic Avenger, a breakthrough independent movie directed by my guest today. Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and I'm joined by a director, screenwriter, producer, and co-founder of the film studio Troma Entertainment. His films include Class of Nukem High, Sergeant Kabuki Man, and four different Toxic Avenger movies. Plus a reboot on the way. And he's the author of several books, including Make Your Own Damn Movie, Sell Your Own Damn Movie, and All I Need to Know About Filmmaking I Learned from The Toxic Avenger. Lloyd Kaufman, welcome to Words and Pictures.
1: Well, uh, damn it, thank you so much. And uh, I'm so excited to come to f-ing Oregon so I can uh, play my f-ing sh-ty hashtag Shakespeare the Shakespeare's Storm, the Hollywood Theaters. The best theater we've ever played. God damn it. Luckily, I know you're not going to censor any of this because the title is hashtag Shakespeare's storm. So uh, thank you for not censoring. It's really great. And I'm sure there won't be any beeps. You said one very bad word
0: there. That was Oregon. It's actually <laughs> it's actually Oregon.
1: We'll change it to Troma, Oregon. But I am going to be at Movie Madness. You know, the museum. It's like a museum. I'm going to sign at the Movie Madness video store. So Lloyd, uh, tell us a little bit about Troma
0: Entertainment. This is a studio that you started back in the, what, 1970s with your business partners?
1: And I began at Troma Entertainment 1974 and um, movies of the future until about 46 years later when Mr. Hers changed the slogan to disrupting media for 46 years now it's 49 years and uh it's just the mainstream it's too stupid when they see an original movie they don't know what to do with it cannibal the musical it wasn't finished i understand that so uh, the big shots uh, maybe they were too stupid to see the talent but uh, we got it and uh, we uh, finished the film for trey parker and matt stone it's one of our greatest and uh the toxic avenger it took 35 years for the mainstream to realize that it's uh a better film than Dr. Strange, right? Who gives a shit about Dr. Strange? Who gives a shitstorm about Dr. Strange? $200 million over the weekend, though. So, But I think hashtag Shakespeare's shitstorm, if it, was given a, if it has been given a pretty good chance. And the New York Times gave it a very good review. And uh, who knows? Maybe it'll catch on. We just don't have any money for advertising. So any of you Troma fans out there, this is the big advertising. Thanks to Mr. S. W. concert we are. Uh, this is our big PR uh, campaign for the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon. And I got to tell you, uh, Dan is the best. He's the best curator and uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, theater.
0: So the film that you're bringing to town, uh, your latest film, it's called Shakespeare's Shitstorm,
1: and it's an adaptation know, of hashtag. The hashtag is very important. Ah, because- okay. The two themes, one is uh, dealing with big pharma, and the other is uh, dealing with uh, so-called snowflakes and the bullshit that comes out of the uh, internet from these uh, third-rate bloggers and people who are afraid to put their name on any, you know, these anonymous and uh, political correctness that goes to the uh, extreme of fascism. Well, the film is an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest.
0: And, you know, British filmmaker Peter Greenaway made a version of The Tempest called Prospero's Books. So yes. are
1: you looking to outgross Greenaway? It wasn't that good. I'll tell you, the best one is Derek Jarman's movie. He, he did The Tempest, uh, Derek Jarman. And, and uh, I think that's the best version. Well, you mentioned Cannibal the Musical. So Troma
0: Entertainment, they're, they're all about distributing independent films. And one of the ones they distributed was a student film by the guy who would go on to start South park, Trey Parker. And the film was called cannibal, the musical. And they hadn't uh, finished it.
1: They ran out of, uh, they made it when they were graduating uh, graduate getting either, get, I think getting kicked out of school or something, but <laughs> my wife and I watched it and it was hilarious. So the boys came to us, uh, they were fans and they came to us first. I was the first stop on the train and, uh, Michael hers told them, look, uh, go to the rich boys, go to the uh, big shot. And, uh, a movie's hilarious, you might get a big uh, advance uh, payment. And they went to all the big shots who were too stupid to realize uh, that, uh, you know, the, the big companies only have people who say no, unless it's uh, elitism or nepotism or uh, some kind of uh, blowjob-ism. So um, we ended up being the last stop on the train. We uh, helped Matt and uh, Trey finish the uh, movie, and uh, the opening of Cannibal the Musical is uh, as trauma-esque as it could be. The rest of the movie is really much more uh, benign and more sophisticated and more uh, more like a genuine musical. It's like Oklahoma meets the Toxic Avenger part two. But uh, at the time we had had success with Class of Newcomb High and some of our movies. So we wanted to give the fans something. And Trey and Matt shot this beautiful opening scene. It was great. Very trauma-ish.
0: Now, there's a fun bit of trivia I want to mention. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, film students at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Their film, Cannibal the Musical, featured a cameo by avant-garde filmmaker Stan Brakhage, who taught them
1: film. The greatest visual artist of my lifetime. And he's the only one. Trey said he was the only one who gave them any kind of uh, encouragement. He was a good guy. We brought him to Yale in 1960. I want to say 65. And uh, I interviewed him, uh, Stan on the radio, <laughs> the Yale radio station. And uh, I asked him one question. He spoke for about an hour, and it was brilliant material. It was so you know great wisdom about art and uh, you know the whole thing. And uh, the the boys didn't, you know, it was all boys in those days at Yale. Uh, They they didn't like that. They wanted to hear the uh, Supremes or uh, Billy Joel or whatever.
0: So you were a radio guy
1: in college? Uh, Freshman year, I tried out for the uh, Yale radio station and was basically kicked out. I interviewed Lillian Gish. I interviewed uh, Stan Brackage. I interviewed, uh, um, um, I could have had a great gay experience, uh, uh, Montgomery Clift. Uh, who came to my house. Uh, Anyway, apparently that wasn't good enough. (laughs) So they kicked me out. They said I was too much of a wise guy. So you were talking to
0: all these film history legends when you were at at Yale when you were an undergrad, but you weren't studying film at the time, were you?
1: No, there was no film then. Uh, There probably still isn't anything that's worthwhile uh, there uh, other than, I mean, maybe physics or chemistry, but I I don't think there's much in the way of arts. They have some kind of theater school, uh, Yale repertoire, uh, who knows. You know. And you were taking,
0: you were majoring in Chinese studies, and this
1: was during well, the Mao Zedong they... era, right? And I ended up speaking pretty well. And when China opened up, I went over there a few times. They did a, a big retrospective at the Shanghai Film Festival about 20, 25 years ago of Trauma. And uh, they made a lot of money with it because they took our prints and bicycled them around to several <laughs> several theaters. I went to one of the theaters too. people spinning on the floors, all sorts of excitement. So I wanted to circle
0: back to Yale because um, I've been told you were classmates at Yale with Oliver Stone. And legend has it that you grew up with Oliver and encouraged him to get into
1: filmmaking. Well, not quite, but we did grow up together from the age of about eight, six, very young. Wow. Folks were very good buddies. And um, and we used to have sleepovers where he just beat the shit out of me and I go home crying. Uh, (laughs) That led to a long friendship. But he uh, he uh, when we were at Yale, I was making movies and he would hang around. He was writing a a very bad novel. Uh, I don't think he had thought about making movies, but he sort of hung around and uh, we made Rappuccini based on a Hawthorne short story. And, and then he uh, is in uh, the first film that I made that actually got into some movie theaters. Um, and um, Michael hers actually liked it at the time. And although it's unwatchable, he was very, very polite. Uh, Oliver's in that film. And then Oliver was one of the producers on Sugar Cookies with the Mary Waranov, Lynn Lowry and a, a bunch of the Warhol superstars. And... Uh, he wanted to form a company together with me, but he was too crazy. He's a,
0: Oliver I, was too crazy for you, Oliver he's Stone? A yeah, he's a psycho. He's
1: one of the greatest American filmmakers in history. So, But, uh, you know, so was Howard Hawks. So was John Ford. You know, John Ford used to call John Wayne a Nancy boy. And imagine if you called uh, somebody of like that today on a set. Holy crap, you'd be canceled so fucking fast. You'd feel like Al Franken uh, <laughs> getting kicked out of the Senate by his own party.
0: Well, I, uh, I know that uh, Oliver Stone sat down with
1: Vladimir Putin and caught a lot of flack for that. He was kissing Putin's ass. Oliver and his father were anti-Semitic when we were kids. They were basically anti-Semitic, even though his dad was a good guy. But he was uh, he was he was a former Jew. He was a Jew, changed his name, from Silverstein to Stone. So and they would make a lot of jokes about uh, the Jewish astronaut, nicknamed Nose Cone. You, you get it? Uh, That was the kind of stuff I had to grow up with. My father actually slapped Oliver in a a trendy, uh, fancy Manhattan uh, restaurant in front of Oliver's parents. Wow. Oliver made some kind of comment.
0: (laughs) Well, you in particular get credited with opening up the whole sort of filmmaking model. You know, nowadays, anybody can pick up some digital filmmaking equipment and make a film, but back in the 70s and 80s, you were really encouraging this model where people could go out and just go nuts with their camcorders yeah. or their little Bolexes or whatever.
1: Bolex. Yes. I still have my Bolex.
0: Me too. <laughs> Yay. So you get a lot of credit for that. You get a lot of credit for being an influence on the kind of gutter punk film
1: movement. Yep. I, I, I don't argue with that, without a doubt. Uh, and we're still here. How many movie studios who are genuinely independent have survived 50 years? Nobody. Let me mention that you got your
0: start working for Canon Films, and that's a studio that was famous for B-movies, but also, also they produced Oscar-nominated films like Joe and Runaway Train.
1: They did. Well, I don't know about uh, Runaway Train, but uh, I was there for I worked on Joe which is where I met John G. Avelson, who turned out to be a very important mentor of mine and led to my, uh, my Oscar-winning performance in Rocky, the Oscar-winning movie. And uh, <laughs> I was in the exterior of Rocky, where Stallone picks me up. I'm a drunk laying in the gutter, and he picks me up, puts me on his shoulder, and takes me inside the bar, but you don't see inside the bar, because in Philadelphia it was mainly exteriors. But uh, if I would pay my way to L.A., uh, John G. Avelson said I could be in the interior. So I went to L.A. and there I am in the uh, several scenes. So
0: you're uh, a drunk in the street in Philadelphia and then you're an inside drunk in
1: L.A. Yep. Okay. In the exterior, I was genuinely drunk. In the interior, uh, I was uh, quite sober. And then uh, we worked together on slow dancing in the big city. And finally, uh, oh, no, no. Before that was uh, Saturday Night Fever. Uh, right. But Evelson uh, got uh, booted. and uh, But I stayed on and uh, learned at the knee of John Batham, who was uh, also a brilliant director. So I got lucky with Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, uh, both of which uh, were like my film schools. So. Yeah, they- you've done
0: a lot of freelance work for big Hollywood movies as well as famous art films. So you were in charge of locations for Saturday Night Fever there's a great story that I heard about your work there. Um, apparently there was a house the producers wanted to use as a shooting location. And John Travolta was really popular at the time. He was Vinnie Barbarino on welcome back Cotter. And so instead of actually offering this family money, you offered them dinner with John Travolta and they let you use the house. Well,
1: they let it the, the Saturday night, Fever was, uh, they put me on that because uh, I saved them millions of uh, trauma, not just me, but trauma saved them a shitload of money. Uh, all the Rocky uh, iconic scenes were shot in Philadelphia using a non union uh, crew, the, the crew that uh, had shot Cry Uncle, which Avelson directed, and which you can see safely and securely on uh, Trauma Now. It's a hilarious movie. Uh, came out as an X rating, but uh, basically today it'd be PG, Uh, Cry Uncle. You should see it. It's absolutely hilarious. A wonderful satire. Avilson turned a a turd into a diamond, Cry Uncle. But anyway, so I had the opportunity to work uh, a lot with him and a big influence and... uh, I think part of the reason that uh, Toxie and Kabuki Man and our movies, which are a little too outrageous, the reason that they have become uh, underground classics is the pathos, the Capra-esque characters in our movies. The uh, uh, I would call it the Avelson uh, heart uh, and soul that uh, come out of Frank Capra and uh, Preston Sturgis, so um, he, he was a big deal. And uh, Batham, I learned a lot too, because Batham came on with about two weeks of notice and uh, rewrote a lot of the script and uh, added some action. And uh, I think uh, you know, Avelson would have done a great job if he continued, but Batham did do a great job. And I don't know how Saturday Night Fever ended up, but was it successful? So you were the Frank Capra
0: of Toxic Slime, basically.
1: Oh, I'm a big fan of Capra. Absolutely. John Ford, Chaplin, Buster Keaton. Of course, Stan Brakhage, number one. Uh, Fritz Lang, Jean Renoir, Mizzaguchi. You know, I'm 77 years old. So those were the type, Sam Fuller, those kinds of uh, auteur directors were uh, in my brain because uh, when I was uh, at Yale, my freshman year, my roommate ran the Yale Film Society. And uh, aside from going in and, and not having to pay to see mo- the movies the uh, Yale Film Society was exhibiting, uh, you know, it was a dollar, I think, or 50 cents, and saved a lot of money. And um, they had a big stack of Cahiers de Cinema uh, magazines in their office. They were in French. And, of course, I, being uh, the supreme bourgeois, I speak French fluently. So I was reading through them, and uh, this whole auteur theory of, of, of filmmaking that these guys at Yale embraced I got caught up in that. So uh, eventually I decided to stay in New York. Well, my friend uh, LSD helped me, but um, eventually decided I'd try to be an hotel filmmaker and stay in New York and, you know, be in the underground, which is uh, where I am at this very moment in the Troma underground. This is, this is, (laughs) well, we own uh, this building. uh, It's not uh, the Trump uh, Tower. It's
0: the Troma Tower. (laughs)
1: That's a good idea.
0: So, people might be surprised that you hooked up with Louis Mal and you were the production manager on My Dinner with Andre?
1: Right after we made Waitress, in which uh, slapstick, raunchy comedy before Porky's, very successful. In, in Waitress, which is uh, on Troma Now, it's hilarious, very, very funny. Uh, there's not a moment that goes by uh, where, you, where there's any length of dialogue. It's all. Um, Chickens landing in people's soup and stuff like. That. It's about a restaurant waitress, and um, the uh, after that, it seemed like uh, an interesting uh, proposition. When Louis Mahl was making this movie with two people talking to each other, and I had met Andre Gregory, who gave me uh, this big, thick uh, book or play or something this thick, and I read through it. Very experimental, but I I I, I liked it, and uh, I got lucky. <laughs> I didn't have to do much either because it was in one hotel, basically, in Virginia. One, I think, uh, a famous hotel in Richmond. And if I'm not mistaken, my father told me that he fucked a woman on the stairs of that very hotel. Uh, in, uh, a woman who I know very well from the time I was a, a little baby, baby. So, uh, you know, it's a um, life, uh, big circle. Like the Tempest. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. And our little life, is rounded with a sleep. Yeah, so you're, uh, Martin uh, you're, says Scorsese, you don't quote Shakespeare. Does Martin Scorsese show? No, he's too busy uh, giving out uh, lifetime achievement awards to uh, to uh, fascist, uh, uh, what the hell was it, the guy who did East of Eden, Elia Kazan, a piece of shit should have been removed from uh, any artistic endeavor. So you've done two Shakespeare adaptations. Yes, right? indeed. Uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD, was uh, all about the, uh, the. Uh, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, there was a Shakespeare, uh, James Gunn, James Gunn, who uh, I'm not sure what happened to him after Tromeo and Juliet, but he wrote, uh, I'd spent five years trying to write the script Tromeo and Juliet, and James, who I just hired, uh, I gave it to him and told him, here's a hundred dollars, uh, please try to solve the issues here I'm having. Brilliant, I came up with a lovely, the only trouble was the first draft had seven or eight urination scenes. And I enjoy urination as much as the next uh, person, but uh, you know, I draw the line at five urination scenes, even for trauma, you know what I mean? But I understood, he was young and very excited. And uh, anyway, he wrote a great script, we filmed it, uh, he's in it. <laughs> And he's a great guy. He's a very, very good guy. You know, for the most part, uh, Michael Hers and I find the mainstream repugnant that uh, 99% of these people are scum of the earth. But the people who have made it uh, a tiny percentage, especially the ones that came out of Choma, they're lovely people. Eli Roth, James Gunn, uh, Marista Tomei, uh, Samuel Jackson, all sorts of people. They're lovely people. And uh, Trey and Matt, they couldn't be nicer. After all these years, they're still uh, nice people, you know, it, and they love cinema. That's what's great. John Voight, who I've known for 30 years, you know, he's only won two Oscars, but he's a good guy. You know, I, was, I had a lot of fun with him. He called me the Aristophanes. of uh, You know, the fact that he heard of Aristophanes. You think that uh, you think the guy who did Dr. Strange has any idea who Aristophanes is?
0: <laughs> well. You've crossed paths at Troma with some really interesting names like
1: Madonna. Is that right? Uh, well, uh, Madonna, I did not cross paths with. Uh, Mr. Herz is uh, responsible for uh, uh, not uh, casting her. She was begging to be in our in probably our funniest movie, which Michael Herz basically directed, uh, the first turn on. And uh, Michael didn't feel she was right for the part. Uh, he wanted a Jewish princess. Uh, And he said that Madonna looked like a Detroit grandmother. This is back in 1982. And uh, so we didn't cast. And thanks to us, Madonna has had a meteoric rise and uh, is in the firmament of uh, all-time great uh, rock and rollers. If she had chosen to be in the Choma movie, the Adams would have gone in different directions and she'd probably be waiting tables. So uh, Madonna, wherever you are, you owe Michael Hers a huge, a huge Uh, return favor you're listening to words and pictures i'm your host sw
0: Conser, and we're talking today with lloyd kaufman he's a fiercely independent director and producer and he's co-founder of the film studio trauma entertainment well back in the 20th century special effects were they were mostly practical meaning that a sculptor would build some sort of a replica, like a miniature or or rubber mask that would look real on film. And, uh, you know, even Doctor Who nowadays is using digital effects. You know, nowadays, all the studios seem to have switched to computer-generated effects.
1: What about Troma? You still believe in practical effects, though? I don't think Troma has ever done anything of a practical nature. So I have to take a little offense uh... (laughs) <laughs> we do, uh, how shall I say it, Brechtian uh, special effects, uh, Thornton Wilder special effects, breaking the fourth wall. So y- you can see when the appliance is sort of coming off or or you can see backstage in the trauma movies. But w- basically, we love practical, what you would call practical effects. And a, a lot of them happen to be just uh, yeah. simple solutions, things that like uh, the head squashing in uh, Toxic Avenger. That could have cost uh, a couple of thousand bucks. Instead, Michael Hers uh, came up with the notion, uh, uh, have a body, have a, a torso, put a, a, a melon, put a wig on the melon, draw a happy face, and presto, you can squash a head. And it worked, worked great. And then we could serve the melon to uh, the craft service table for uh, dessert. Very Double awesome. duty. A little rubbery taste, maybe, but... <laughs> Well, and it shared, has to be a cantaloupe. I fired somebody on on uh, "Tales from the Crapper." Uh, uh, Trey Parker's head gets squashed, and they brought a, a, a green melon, uh honeydew melon. Uh, you can't—that's no good. The skin's this thick, whereas a nice ripe cantaloupe, uh, the skin is—you uh, know, it's, its like that. You know that kind of stuff. It's very technical. You have to read my seven books on making your own damn movies. Well. You know, make your own damn movie. You've shared this technology.
0: You've hosted special effects workshops. uh, Make your own damn film masterclasses where, yeah, you demonstrate how to crush a fake head or rip a character's fake arm off. Wow, you did a lot. You've dug deep here. Thank you so much. Hey, full disclosure, I actually ran lights for one of your uh, workshops in Portland. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, the one at the Jefferson Theater. So yeah, tell us a little about these workshops. You would invite people to participate in these special effects on stage.
1: Yes, uh, uh, very entertaining. And uh, a lot of the uh, technique that we have learned, uh, uh, like Louis Pasteur said, uh, there's a simple solution to every problem. So we kind of show how we are able to solve uh, things. And in fact, on Troma Now, the streaming service, Use the trauma app, it's free. But there are a lot of my uh, special lessons, how to make blood, for example. If you're outdoors, for example, and you want to make blood and put it on people, we use, for the most part, caro syrup, which is a liquid form of sugar. Mix it with the vegetable coloring and a little soap so it doesn't stay in your clothing. And presto. But if you're outdoors and you're using something with sugar, the bees and the insects are going to come to the dead people and you're going to see that they're going to be moving around. And so you use hair gel here. See just in this one interview, I've given you more valuable information than, uh, than the guy who did licorice pizza will give you in his entire career. Holy cow. What was that about? Licorice pizza. Anyway, see, hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm. I would say 90% of the movie is practical and there's probably 10% of, uh, CGI. I don't want to spoil it for you, but uh, the CGI is, is as good as it gets. We had major, major people doing the CGI who did it for free, basically. But uh, in uh, Return to Newcombe High and Return to Return to Newcombe High, the two-part movie suggested by one Quentin somebody or other, he uh, suggested that. Uh, but uh, there there is CGI, but knowing that we couldn't compete with the uh, mainstream technically we uh, did kind of, uh, again, breaking the fourth wall, we basically uh, made the CGI obvious, you know, and it's kind of fun too. When
0: you were growing up in the 1950s and early 60s, uh, science fiction and horror movies were all the rage. At the time though, they weren't considered prestige pictures. They were dismissed as B movies, drive-in movies, but the themes they often tackled were subjects that Hollywood wasn't touching cold war politics atomic yes. energy racism authoritarianism
1: well you're talking about the career of roger corman who as far as that's the only one i really uh, understand because guess who's coming to dinner tonight <laughs> by stanley kramer was 100 percent boring and did nothing it, you know it was absolutely not uh, but the trip on the other hand written by an actor directed by corman uh, brilliant about lsd and uh the uh the one with william shatner the uh the uh, interloper the uh what's it called it's wonderful uh, great it's got religion it's got uh, all sorts of stuff. anyway corman did it he did some great uh and we've taken the the mantle uh well we haven't he's still the super duper roger corman is still with us he's still yeah, you know i've been friends with, we've been friends our families are friendly and uh we just went to a show of his daughter's art here in New York. And Roger was there, uh, 90-something years old.
0: Yeah, uh, he might make it to his 100th birthday. Wouldn't um, that be great?
1: Yeah, Two of our daughters are making a, a, a serious documentary about uh, family and uh, trauma. They're growing up with the debutante mother and the film commissioner mother and the sad, uh, drunken trauma father. And uh, it's a very interesting documentary. And um, Roger and Julie are the executive producers, and they've been uh, wonderful friends for 50 years at least. I've got a book by
0: Roger Corman called How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. Um, I know that Troma and I do Studio- it the other way. Yeah, I know. I, I, Troma Studio has had more ups and downs than Rogers American <laughs>
1: International Pictures. Look, yeah, you're Jay so- Parker wrote the introduction to uh, one of the books, and he says uh, nobody knows how to make money mo- losing movies than uh, Lloyd Coffin. That's my that's the quote on my Twitter profile. And oh, yet and you're kind of true, you're still here.
0: I mean, you've you've survived all those adventures and misadventures.
1: Yeah, no. Somehow, uh, our fans are the secret sauce, without a doubt. Our fans act in the movies, they they give us money. Uh, and the people who uh, shoot the movies, we had uh, people from uh, the top Hollywood camera team from uh, LA, uh, the guy who did all those, most of the practical effects was from California and a Hollywood guy. But the point is, if you work on a trauma movie, you can uh, take some risks and do things you would never get away with. If you're working on a $20 million Hollywood movie, because those have to be sausages. Well, when you started
0: making movies and you're a New Yorker through and through New York was in the seventies, a cheap place. Everybody was saying, Oh, New York is over, you know, so you could, you could buy a loft for, you know, a couple thousand dollars, but you know, now it's a different story. So um, it must be tricky to have young crew members who can afford to
1: live in Manhattan. Well, the people who work on the movies, for the most part, they come in when we're making a movie. Normally we have about 10 people maximum. Uh, and they're all, except for Michael hers uh, and me and two, two other people, they're all well under 30 and they all love movies and uh, they all uh, love trauma. But when we make a movie, there's like a hundred people. And the uh, hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm had uh, days and days and days of 50 to 100 people on set just uh, because the scenes required a lot of people. And um, you look at that movie, you tell me that movie would be made in California. Or I don't mean if if, if hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm was made in a typical so-called low budget uh, Blumhouse way, you'd be talking at least 10 million. And uh, ours is 400,000. Anybody else beside Blumhouse would be 40 million. So, uh, you know, it's not easy. But as I said, you don't have to spend money. It's it's not even satisfying to to put all that money into one movie. Two hundred million dollars. That's ridiculous.
0: Well, you know, of all the movies that I've seen of yours, it's never totally serious the whole way through, at least. There's a tradition of Jewish American humor that can be pretty transgressive at times. It, It runs from Vaudeville to Mad Magazine to Mel Brooks to the magnificent Mrs. Maisel's, uh, you definitely bring some of that tradition into Troma
1: Productions. I agree with you, uh, not just a hundred percent, but a thousand percent. There's no question. My grandfather was in Vaudeville. Uh, I don't know if you uh, remember Ed Wynn, but he was, uh, they were in Vaudeville. They had an act together. I can't. I don't remember what the name is, was, but, uh, and he didn't, he got, my grandfather got out of it. Just as Edwin was becoming a star, which is what we're very good at doing that in our, our family. But um, the point is, uh, I have a, a bit of a tradition. My mother was a theater person and uh, my father read Punch Magazine and The Spectator. And we had New Yorker as kids. And, uh, uh, you know, we grew up with a lot of humor. And, uh, of course, uh, Mad Magazine is a huge influence on me. Um, the producers is like our anthem movie, Mel Brooks, and uh, Woody Allen. We love Woody Allen. Uh, I don't care too much for some of them, but certainly uh, his comedies are wonderful. And uh, his book, the latest book, was wonderful and had a lot of words. I had to look up uh, Jewish words, as a matter of fact, because uh, my folks were not religious; they were uh, the jet set types. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about one more uh, filmmaker that you were friends with, and that's the uh, late legendary Eric Sherman, who was the son of uh, Vincent Sherman. Eric was a friend of yours, and uh, he grew up around all of these amazing stars, uh, Humphrey Bogart, Richard Burton, Ava Gardner, Betty Davis, Rita Hayworth.
1: Vincent's a book, you ought to read Vincent's uh, book, uh, called Studio Affairs. It's very good, very entertaining. It's all about the women he fucked, from Joan Crawford to uh, Betty Day. You know, he was a woman's director until he got uh, graylisted. Black- he basically got blacklisted and never- didn't make another movie from 1950-something until the late- in 1969 when he was, doing- he was doing TV shows, like uh, hospital shows. Uh, he-, he lived almost uh, to 100 years old. Eric is Dead, and he uh, went a uh, little bonkers. He went with the, uh, he became heavy into Scientology, which he never told me. And uh, so I, I don't want to go into that because he tried to fuck uh, Trey and Matt using me to uh, help uh, science. And I didn't know that. So uh, And famously,
0: South Park just went to town on Scientology.
1: And, yeah, well, that's, uh, why, uh, 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 that's why Eric uh, tried to use me to get a mole. Uh, you know, he wanted to. I don't. I shouldn't go into it. But Oof. the Village Voice did a whole thing about Scientology, and apparently Eric sent memos to his bosses saying, uh, ah, "Big news! I got the president of Trome Entertainment. He's working on uh, finding a mole to go into the uh, Trey and Matt's office." Uh, they never. I, I, a, I didn't know Eric was a Scientology big shot, and B, uh, uh, I didn't know the purpose of this was to uh, uh, damage Trey and Matt. So uh, these memos came out because uh, the Village Voice did a big expoise. A, a Village Voice is a rag in New York that's out of business. Uh, no, no, it's back in business now. Well, bleh, nobody reads it. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, they don't have any interest in the arts that I can see. Uh, it's like the New York Times, you know, they're all star but anyway, Eric fucked me there. And I, uh, and my wife insisted I would never talk to him again because, uh, uh, you know, he never told me that he uh, was in Scientology and he fucked up my, he could have fucked up my friendship with Trey and Matt. And he may have, I don't know. Maybe they've, you know, who knows? They, they claim that uh, they knew I wasn't involved, but, you know, you never know. It certainly didn't help my relationships with Trey and Matt, that uh, the memos claim that Mem- memos made it look like i was in on it you know which i had no idea
0: well let's go out on a wacky note um i heard <laughs> i heard that you got injured on the morton downey jr show
1: yes yes uh, the trauma team enjoy constantly running it on uh, youtube uh, where i get humiliated and beaten up and uh, have my shoulder dislocated and uh, uh, yeah it was a setup it was uh, in those days they had live uh, it was a live broadcast for the first week. I had no idea what it was. I was overseas at, at the so-called Cannes Film Festival, I think it was. And um, supposedly this was going to be some sort of a... When they offered it, uh, my assistant uh, agreed to it. And it uh, was going to be a, a Halloween party. And they trauma was going to be the center of a discussion of horror. And all. instead it was... Uh, uh, if you see the, if you see the footage, you see it was, it was all fixed. It was all pre. The audience was. It was like a punk, like getting punked. Except that uh, I didn't want to. He had a thing where he says to the audience, shall we keep them or do we get rid of them?" And they was all rehearsed because I could hear them when I was in the green room. They were practicing, so um, uh, I just didn't understand what they were practicing. So uh, and my wife had just had a baby. She was in the audience, and you couldn't get out of there. Uh, unless you walked I couldn't get off stage unless I walked through this audience uh, many of whom had penises on their noses and guns and uh, fake uh, weapons and so I refused to get off the stage and my assistant uh, whose name was Arthur I thought it'd be nice if he could be on TV uh, and his mother could see him and we both wore our little bar mitzvah suits and next thing we know we're you know we didn't want to get off we would have gotten off during a break uh, uh, if there was security but I'm not going to walk into that so then they the big fat security guys uh, it was so powerful it was so un, uh, forceful that my watch was ripped off my uh, wrist and and then uh, they called the cops and the cops came in with these huge uh, metal things they looked like giant uh, u-shaped uh, metal you know and they were going to hit me uh, <laughs> Anyway, it was very unpleasant. We sued them, of course. We don't sue many people. We haven't sued many people, only one or two in 50 years. But uh, we drew some blood. Not much, but we did draw some blood. And they stopped the live uh, showing. They had uh, the delay. So if something uh, stupid happened, they... they, And I don't think... uh, I think that they toned it down a lot. And uh, that was the end of Downey. He was full... Anyway, he was full of shit. The only thing about him was his father... Morton Downey Sr. was a uh, a tenor, a famous crooner. And um, so that was how Downey Jr. got into the game. And uh, he first tried to make it by being a Robert Kennedy fan. And then when that didn't work, he changed to the other side to becoming a right wing uh, fascist kind of guy. And uh, sure enough, he uh, (laughs) he had some success for about five minutes.
0: You've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and we've been talking today with director, screenwriter, producer, and author Lloyd Kaufman. His books include Make Your Own Damn Movie and All I Need to Know About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. His latest film is an adaptation of The Tempest
1: called Shakespeare's Shitstorm. Hashtag, please, the hashtag. I don't care about the shit, but the hashtag is very important. Yeah, Lloyd, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thank you, Portland, for being so kind to uh, Trome Entertainment over the many years. And uh, a big thank you to uh, Dan at the uh, Hollywood Theater. I hope that uh, you will uh, prosper and that the, uh, this coming summer will be peaceful. And if not, uh, the Toxic Avenger is going to come and uh, mop up. Well, for those listeners who
0: might be interested in finding out more about your work, where would they look?
1: Well, I would suggest, first of all, uh, Troma Now. If you want to see great movies, it's free the first month. So enjoy about a thousand uh, documentaries, movies, uh, music videos that I've directed, uh, lessons in making films, make your own damn movie. And if you watch these documentaries, you won't need to go to film school. And then, of course, you have the where We can buy the hard goods.
0: So uh, Portlanders who would like to run into you, see you in person this weekend, uh, how would they do that?
1: Well, I say come to the Hollywood Theater and see the Northwest premiere of Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. If any of you have seen The Tempest, it will make the film much more delightful to you. But if you don't know The Tempest and you haven't had time to review it, uh, the movie's great just as it is. And you're making an afternoon appearance as well in yes, Portland. Yes, uh, uh, I met a guy on Grinder. we will be getting. Oh, oh, you mean the uh, the uh, yes, Movie Madness, uh, the Trauma Team Toxie will be there, I think, and we'll have uh, some brand new merch and uh, wonderful new movies that we put on Blu-ray and DVD. And amazing, worthless merchandise. So you can get free photographs and free signatures, and uh, I'll sign anything.
0: And thank you, Lloyd Kaufman, and thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of this show later today at kboo.fm slash wordsandpictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at wordsandpicture.